Hey, good morning, everybody, and uh, welcome. Everybody, good to see you. Everybody awake? Good? Good, good. Uh, great, to, great to see you here. Thanks so much for uh, coming out. Can you believe that uh, we're just two weeks away from Easter weekend? That's sneaking up on us, isn't it? And I bring it up because it's a, it's a great uh, opportunity. It's going to be a great weekend, so make sure you're here. And uh, make sure that you invite somebody to come along uh, with you. You know, probably everybody in the room here right now, you're here uh, because of somebody's invitation. And uh, chances are it's probably an invitation to a special event or to Christmas or maybe to Easter. Studies show that two-thirds of the people in your life and in my life that don't go to church would go if somebody invited them, but nobody invites them, and so they don't know, you know what time, they don't know what, what to wear, you know, they don't know where to go and, and uh, what to do. And so here's what I want to do. I want to make this real simple for you, and I'm going to give you the words, okay, what to say to invite somebody to come uh, for Easter. I know that it can be a little bit scary, you know, to invite somebody uh, to church, and so here, here it is. This is going to be real easy. And uh, here's what to say. First, you want to pick up some of these invite cards that are on the, uh, uh, at the doors on your way out of the auditorium uh, today. And uh, let's say this together, okay? Ready? If you don't have a church to attend this Easter, we'd love to have you join us. That's easy, right? You can do that. That's pretty, that's pretty simple. And here's what this does. If somebody goes to another church, good for them. You know, we want other churches to succeed. But if you don't have any place... You know, you're welcome uh, to come and join us uh, for Easter. And then uh, tell them it's casual. Yeah, you know, you don't have to wear an Easter bonnet or an Easter hat. You don't have to wear pastels. You know, just show up. And then here's the next part. Three identical services to choose from over two days. And so if they're busy at one time, you know, we've got other options. We've got lots of options. We've got three services over, over two uh, days, multiple services. I learned this when I was in high school, and I would ask a girl out, and she'd say, I'm busy then. And I would say, anytime. You know, anytime works for me. And so, you know, we've got other times, we've got other service times, we've got multiple options. And one more, okay, most important, baby chickens. Yeah, we're going to have some baby chicks out there in the lobby, a little display area. And this is for the kids, something fun for the uh, kids. Uh, you know, think about it. People with kids often pick things to do based on what makes their kids quiet. I mean, happy. I mean, happy. <laughs> makes their kids happy. And so, you know, if the people that you're inviting have little kids, you know, tell them about the baby chickens. They're going to be out in the lobby, and we're going to have great things, not just in the classrooms. Uh, We've got a play area uh, for for kids that's just a lot of fun. So make sure you give them the invite card, okay? And those are, you know, four things that you want to tell them. All right, we're continuing this series called uh, The Road. And uh, we're, we're, we're talking about how we're all on a road in life, and all of us pretty much have the same destination, a place of joy, a place of happiness, a place of heaven. You know, we all want to get there. But so many times, you know, there are, the road is just filled with twists and turns and ups and downs, right, and things that we don't expect that many of us don't fully make it down the road, and we feel like we never arrive. And sometimes we feel like, you know, we don't know which way to go. So we've been talking about how the last week of Jesus' life lived out in Jerusalem helps us navigate all those, you know, twists and turns as we go down the road of our life because Jesus has the ability to lead us not just to the grave, but through the grave. And so we've been talking about things that he encountered that we also encountered. We started out the first weekend talking about public opinion and how to deal with the applause of the crowd. Then last weekend, we talked about betrayal and how Jesus dealt with that. Next weekend, we're going to talk about loneliness and how Jesus dealt with the crucifixion. And then in two weeks, it's the empty tomb on Easter, and we're going to talk about the destination of life. But today, we're going to talk about another issue, 
and this is an issue that all of us face, I'm just going to call this issue the detour of dread. The detour of dread. And if you have a Bible with you, go ahead and open up to Matthew chapter 26. If you don't have a, a Bible, feel free to use that Bible in the chair back in front of you. In fact, you can just keep that as our gift to you, or you can just follow along. We'll put the scriptures up on this, the screen. Here's the problem uh, w- w- with dread. All of us deal with it, but we don't, oftentimes we don't recognize how dread takes us on a detour from the road that leads to our destination. All right, so let me just catch you up on where we are. We left off last week. Jesus and his disciples are in the upper room. They're eating the Last Supper together, and it's a great time, but it's also a tense time because Jesus calls out Judas, who will betray him. And Judas gets up and eventually leaves, and they all eventually get up and and leave as well. So let's pick it up there where we left off last time. Verse 30 says, Then they sang a hymn in the upper room, and then they went out to the Mount of Olives. I used to think the Mount of Olives was a long way away, a long journey until I went over to Jerusalem, and it's not very far at all. But here's what I find really interesting about this scripture. It says, they sang a hymn together. I mean, have you ever thought about this? Have you ever noticed how when we sing together in this room, that it's kind of a unifying moment for all of us. And you know, it's not just here, anytime we sing together, maybe, maybe it's at a birthday party for somebody, when we sing together, it unifies us together as people. Maybe you have experienced this at a Milwaukee Brewer baseball game, right? You go to the Brewer game and what do we sing? The seventh inning. Take me out to the ball game. People that don't even sing, sing that one. And it's this unifying uh, moment. And then there's another song that we sing in the seventh inning, right? You know, the old polka drinking song. Yeah, roll out the barrel, and that has nothing to do with what I'm talking about, uh, except for the fact that it unifies people, right? I mean, some people go all out on, on that one. Sometimes at a baseball game, we'll sing, God bless America, and it's a powerful, unifying moment. And that's why we sing together, you know, in our services on the weekend, because it unifies us as people, and it unifies us with God. That's what's going on here in the upper room. Jesus and these guys are unified as brothers because they sing together, but also because of all the experiences they've had together and all the places that they've gone together, but they're about to go to a place where they had never been before. And Jesus knows this moment is coming. These, these men don't really know it's coming, even though Jesus has been telling them. They just haven't figured it out yet. But now they move toward this point. And this is a point that Jesus has been dreading. I'm not, not, not worried because that would be a sin, but he's dreading this moment because he knows what, what lies at the end of this road. You, you ever have these moments in life where you're dreading something? You know, maybe some of you, you know, dread, you know, going to work tomorrow. Or maybe some of you right now, you're, you know, you're dreading paying your taxes. Or maybe you dread going to the dentist. But I want to talk about more serious stuff than that. You know, maybe you're dreading a conversation with your child. Maybe... Maybe some of you have a 16-year-old child that's making some you know, bad decisions and, and you need to have a conversation. Or maybe you've got a child who's much, much older than that who's, who hasn't left home and, and you need to have the failure to launch conversation and you're dreading it. Or maybe for some of you, maybe you're dreading some kind of health issue you know, because you know you need to have some, some tests taken. Or maybe it's an addiction in your life and you know what's involved in dealing with it and you're dreading it. Maybe some of you might be dealing with dread just dealing with your parents. Maybe your parents are aging. 
and you don't know what's next for them. You don't know, you know, are you going to need to, are they going to need to move in with you? Or are you going to need to provide some extra outside care, you know, for, for, for them? And how's that all going to work? Or maybe you're younger, and when you come home in the evenings, you just don't know what you're going to get. Will dad be passed out on the couch? Will mom be abusive? You don't know. And you dread it. For some of you, you're dreading a conversation with your spouse. Maybe it's something about your past or something about their present. And the dread alone makes you not want to go down that road. You see, here's the problem with dread. It often makes us take a detour on the road because it makes us say things like, well, I'll just, I'll just put that off until later. Or I'm going to take the path of least resistance. Or maybe I don't even need to deal with this. And the problem is that when we dread things, sometimes we don't go down the road that we're really supposed to go down. Do you know that Jesus dealt with this and just and, and, and dealt with it head on? Because after they ate that last supper and, and they sang this hymn together, they leave the upper room. And now they go to the Mount of Olives where the Garden of Gethsemane is located. And Jesus is going to pray in this garden because Jesus knows that in just a few hours, he's not only going to be arrested and he's not only going to be put on trial on you know, bogus charges, he knows that he's going to be whipped and mocked and spit upon and beaten and crucified. And Jesus understandably dreads uh, this moment. How do you deal with your dread? Let's see how Jesus dealt with his. And let's go to the place where this happened. After they left the upper room, Jesus and his disciples came out to the Mount of Olives, which is where I'm located right now. Although they retreated here many times, they came here this specific time so that Jesus could spend time not only with his friends, but also with his father. The ridge on the Mount of Olives is about a two-mile stretch that sits about 2,600 feet above the valley below between here and Jerusalem. And they come out here for Jesus to prepare for uh, what is ahead. And this is a, a moment, though, it's why he came. It is what he begins to dread because of the events that are about to take place. It's fitting that they're out here in an olive garden because the olive tree is so symbolic throughout the entire story of Scripture. If you think back toward the very beginning of Scripture, we have the story of Noah who goes and builds this ark and arranged for 40 days and 40 nights. And at the end of that period of time, he sends out a dove to figure out if there is land and if the water is beginning to go down. The dove comes right back. And a while later, he sends out another dove, and it returns with an olive branch. And then soon after that, he sends out another dove, and it never returns, letting them know that there are signs of life and the water's beginning to subside. The olive branch that represented life for them is re representing life for us at this place. In front of this olive tree where Jesus spends time in this garden to be alone with his Father, it's so representative of the life that Jesus will, will bring to us. And what's significant about the olive tree is just how tenacious these things are. We've been looking at olive trees all week long as we've been touring Israel. And I'm telling you, you just can't kill these things. You can't, you can't cut them down. They just continue to rise up like Jesus himself. And it's at this moment that Jesus, feeling the full weight of what's about to happen and the full dread of what's coming up, that Jesus retreats to this garden of Gethsemane which means the place where the olive is crushed. Matthew chapter 26, verse 36 says, Then Jesus went with them to the olive grove called Gethsemane. And he said, Sit here while I go over there to pray. 
He took Peter and Zebedee's two sons, James and John, and he became anguished and distressed. He told them, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. The word Gethsemane means the place where the olive is crushed and the olive is, is pressed down in this place. They collect olives and they smash them in a press and the oil is received. And it's so fitting that Jesus is here at this moment and literally his soul is being crushed. And in this moment, when he feels this anguish and this crushing, he doesn't want to be alone. And so he brings his closest friends with him and then he brings his, his, his closest friends out of the 12, further with him along. And he says, would you sit here with me and would you, would you pray? And we're the same way. I mean, there's times we don't want to be alone and, and we have a friend go with us, maybe to the doctor. We want a, a friend to sit with us at the funeral. We might even want a friend to go with us to, to the job interview, maybe sit in the car and just, we'll know they're there. And so it's fitting for us to know that Jesus, God in the flesh, in this moment of deep despair and crushing, he doesn't want to be alone. Luke 22, verse 44 reads, And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Luke gives us this description, and Luke's a physician, and he points out something that doctors now call this condition called hematohydrosis, which is where the, the which is this experience where the body is so exhausted and stressed that the tiny capillaries underneath the skin begin to burst and the blood begins to mingle with the sweat. And so Jesus is sweating drops of blood. Another symbol that his soul is being crushed in this moment that he's been dreading. Matthew 26 verse 39 reads, he went out a little further and bowed with his face to the ground, praying, my father, if it's possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. It's in this moment of great dread and anguish that Jesus is feeling the full weight of what's about to happen. And he's wrestling with his father here. If there's any way, father, if there's another plan, let, let's go with that one. Let's talk about that. But before he can begin to plead his case more, he says, yet yeah, I want your will to be done. That's what's, that's what's most important here. And no matter how much my soul is being crushed and how much I dread what's about to happen, I will go through it because I have faith in you, Father. That's the moment Jesus is wrestling with right here. And, and in this moment, he's talking to his father and he thinks he needs just a little support from his, from his friends and he gets up to go and check on them and notice what he finds. Matthew 26, verse 40 says, then he returned to the disciples and found them asleep. He said to Peter, couldn't you watch with me even one hour? Keep watch and pray so that you will not give in to temptation for the spirit is willing, but the body is weak. And uh, isn't this so much like a group of guys? I mean, they, you know, they just had a big meal and now they're falling asleep. And these guys can't even stay awake to support Jesus. And Jesus begins to chastise, kind of chastise them a bit about, you know, there's, there's sometimes prayer is more important than sleep and what's about to happen. You guys need to pray up for that. You guys need to prepare for this just as, just as I am. And then Jesus returns to pray again. Verse 42 says, then Jesus left, left them a second time and prayed, my father, if this cup cannot be taken away unless I drink it, your will be done. Now, what is this cup Jesus keeps referring to that he's asking? Is there any way that, you know, I can let this pass? Well, it's not just the pain of crucifixion. It's not just the pain of the events that'll lead up to it. It's the pain of the rejection that he's about to feel from his father. See, Jesus knows he's about to absorb the sin of humanity and that his father doesn't coexist with sin. And so he knows there's going to be a separation for the first time in eternity between the son and the father. And 
You see, that's the moment that Jesus is dreading. Matthew 26, 43, says when he returned to them again, he found them sleeping for they couldn't keep their eyes open. So he went to pray a third time, saying the same things again. And then he came to his disciples and said, go ahead and sleep, have your rest. But look, the time has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Up, let's be going. Look, my betrayer is here. You know, from where I stand here in this olive grove, it's clear to see that you'd be able to tell when a squadron of soldiers were on their way from Jerusalem, especially at night, when they carried torches and the noise they would make. And Jesus knows that his betrayer is on his way along with soldiers and the officials to take him away. And he says, the time has come. And all this took place in in this garden of Gethsemane, the place where the olive is crushed. And Jesus' soul was crushed as well. When we went to the garden of Gethsemane, it's this large sprawling area just filled with olive trees. And they built this church there, like they have other locations around Jerusalem where significant events happen. But this church is very quiet, and that's because it's built over the location where they think Jesus might have prayed. And our tour guide gave us a little extra time. He said, walk around and pray and take your concerns to God, to the Father. And it was very powerful. It was a very overwhelming moment for all of us just thinking about Jesus that night. And I started thinking about, you know, how did Jesus deal with his moment of dread? What do I do when I dread things? And what do you do when you dread things? See, Our typical reaction is to worry and stress and feel anxious, but Jesus really takes a different route. Our typical reaction is to let dread be a detour for us and cause us to say, you know, well, I don't really, you know, want to have that conversation, and so I'm going to put that off, or I don't really want to say I'm sorry to this other person, and so I'm going to explain to them why it's really their problem, or I don't want to deal with this addiction in my life right now, so I'm going to act like I don't have one, or I don't really want to deal with my faith, and so I'm going to come up with excuses. And the problem with dread is that it forces us to make some bad decisions in our life because we take the path of least resistance. But Jesus deals with it differently, and Jesus models for us how to push through those moments that we dread, to go down the road that God has uh, for us. When I reflected on the time that we had at the Garden of Gethsemane and went back and reread the story, I wrote down four resolves, four promises that I think you know, all of us need to embrace when it comes to dealing with dread. And these four have a lot to do with what we see Jesus do in his moment of dread. And so as we go through these, I want you mentally, just right where you are, you don't need to say these out loud, but I want you mentally just between you and God to save these resolves, to save these promises as to how you will respond the next time that you face a moment of dread. Here's the first one. I will not go go through tough stuff alone. I will not go through tough stuff alone because we have this tendency, and I think guys especially, when we go through tough stuff, to say, I'm going to go inward. And I'm just going to deal with this myself. I'm not going to bother anybody else with my problems. I can figure this out on my own. I should be able to take care of myself. But it's interesting, before Jesus undergoes the most difficult time in his time on earth, he wants his friends with him. Now, granted, they didn't, you know, they really kind of let him down, didn't they? I mean, they they fell asleep on him. They, They let him down like... 
like imperfect, all imperfect human beings do. But it's interesting to note that in this moment, when he goes through tough stuff, Jesus doesn't want to go through it alone. He wants his closest friends with him. You know, sometimes I, I notice something um, about people around here. Sometimes people will just disappear for a, a, a while. Maybe you've noticed this, maybe in your small group, you know, people just kind of disappear for a, a, a while. Or maybe at Celebrate Recovery on, on Monday night, you just don't see somebody for a while. And then, they, and then they show up. And you say, hey, you know, where were you? And they say, well, I was just dealing with some stuff in my life. I got busy and had a lot of things going on, went through a rough patch, and I got mad, and I just, I just didn't want to be, be seen. But those are the moments when you need to be here. You know, those are the moments when you need to lean in rather than run away. And what we see here in this moment that Jesus clearly models for us is that when you deal with the tough stuff in your life, don't deal with it alone. You know, over and over the Bible says, bear one another's burdens. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. And for us to deal with dread in our life in a way that, you know, it doesn't lead us into the ditch, lead us off the road into the ditch. We have to make the resolve, I will not go through tough stuff alone. You know, but maybe right now you're going through some stuff, tough stuff, all by yourself. You know, if you're struggling with a habit, with a hurt, with some hang-up, go to Celebrate Recovery on Monday nights, and there's a team of people there that would love to help you through your tough stuff. Or maybe you'd like to meet with somebody one-on-one. We've got this fantastic ministry. It's called Stephen Ministry, and a Stephen minister will meet with you. Now, they're not professional counselors, but They've gone through 50 hours of extensive training so that they can come alongside you and encourage you and support you and listen to you and just pray you through whatever tough stuff. So don't do it alone. Contact them if you'd like to find out more. Then here's the second resolve. I will pray with raw honesty. I will pray with raw honesty. Recently, we, uh, we, we surveyed people. Maybe some of you participated and we asked people to submit their questions about God. And we're going to do a series. We're going to use those questions and do a series right after Easter. But many people submitted questions about prayer. And what we see Jesus do here can really help us grow in our prayer life. Where rather than just saying a childhood prayer or praying, you know, what we think God wants to hear, Jesus models for us how to just speak directly with God and to be real with him. I want you to see how Jesus deals with dread by praying exactly what's on his heart, even to the point of saying to God, Father, if there's another way, let's talk about that other way. Look at uh, how the Hebrew writer puts it. While Jesus was here on earth, he offered prayers and pleadings with a loud cry and tears to the one who could rescue him from death. Look at what it says about how Jesus would pray with loud cries. And tears. That's gut level honest. That's praying with raw honesty. In November, when we took this trip to uh, Israel, there was a group of uh, 12 of us, and we had a tough moment. We landed in Tel Aviv, and we're all excited to get there. But the first thing you go through is security, and uh, we discovered they have a pretty intense security. And uh, only 11 of us, uh, 11 of us made it through. They held uh, one back and we couldn't talk to him we couldn't ask any questions and so we waited at the gate we thought okay maybe this will be five minutes or ten minutes but actually 
it, we stood there waiting for over three hours. And as time went on, we, got, we felt more confused and concerned and troubled, especially for this group member. And uh, his, his, his wife, who was separated from him, but really there was nothing we could do except pray. And so we formed a, a circle right there at the security gate in the airport. And we prayed and we poured out our heart to God. We didn't hold back. And there was emotion and there were tears and we notified the staff back here at River Glen. Many of our staff just dropped whatever they were doing and went to a room and, and prayed about this situation. And uh, guess what happened? After we prayed, they let him through. And we just celebrated and thanked God for answering that prayer. And sometimes that's what happens when a person, when a people, when a church prays with raw honesty before God. And I look at Jesus holding nothing back, completely honest with his father. And that's how I want to pray. That's how I want to respond to moments that I dread. Third resolve I see here is that I will remember Jesus has been where I am. Remember, Jesus has been where you are. Take a look at how the Hebrew writer explains this. Chapter 4, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest, that's Jesus, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, But we have one who's been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Here's what that's saying. Jesus has been where you are, whatever situation that you're in. You ever had a moment, for example, where you felt betrayed? You ever had a moment where somebody comes up to you and they have a conversation and they say something to you like, uh, I don't know how to tell you this, but uh, they're cheating on you. They're not being faithful to you. And in that moment... When you feel betrayed, guess what? Jesus doesn't say, ah, I've heard about that, or I've seen that. No, he says, I remember that. Or maybe you're lying in in bed one night, and you can't fall asleep because you're just dreading something coming up the next day. Maybe it's a medical test. Maybe it's a series of medical tests. Maybe it's a conversation with somebody, and you're dreading it, and you can't fall asleep. Jesus doesn't look at you and say, oh, I've heard of that. Or I remember that. No, he says, I remember that. And in those moments I dread, I've got to remember that Jesus has been there too. And we don't follow a Savior who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses because he's been there and experienced it. And in those moments when we cry out, he doesn't just say, oh, I've heard of that. He says, I remember that. The last resolve is this. I will surrender to God's better plan. We see this throughout this prayer. Jesus Jesus uses if and yet. He prays, if it is possible, Father, yet your will be done. Mark says it this way in his account of Jesus' story. Abba, which is their, their version of our word daddy. Abba, Father, he cried out. Jesus cried out, everything is possible for you. Please take this cup of suffering away from me. Yet, I want your will to be done not mine. Here's what this means for us. In those moments you dread, you pray with raw honesty to your heavenly Father, and you say, God, I know everything is possible for you. God, you know, I know that that you can save this life. I know you could prevent this bankruptcy. I know you could protect my job. I know that you could save the life of my child. I know that you can do all these things, yet I will trust you And if you choose to go another way because of your plan or because of what you can see from where you are or because you know something that I don't know, I will trust even if it doesn't make sense to me right now. 
You know, there's, there's some times, to be honest with you, I don't understand what God is up to. But I think about how in this moment, Jesus had similar feelings and he trusted his father. And there was so much more at stake for Jesus than for me. See, here's the principle I learned from what Jesus did in the garden that day. It teaches me that I can trust the father because Jesus did. In moments I don't understand, I can look to the one who trusted his father's better plan. There's a scene in the movie, The Passion of the Christ, that I really like. And I know they took some artistic license with this, but maybe some of you remember, I think it's the opening scene of the movie where Jesus is in Gethsemane and he's praying. And at the end of the prayer, a snake slithers in and it's reminiscent of the Garden of Eden and Adam and Eve and the snake right after the the fall of man. And God steps in and says, the offspring of the woman will crush the head of the snake. And it's foreshadowing, it's prophesying toward this moment when Jesus will defeat evil by what he's about to do. And after all of the anguish and praying and sweating and drops of blood, Jesus stands up and with resolve, he points his face toward his captors and he walks directly toward them, crushing the head of the snake. And so here's my question for you today. What do you need to point your face toward? What do you need to walk toward with resolve and go through it following your heavenly father? Is it a conversation that you need to have? Is it an addiction that you need to deal with? Is it, a, is it a, an apology that you need to make? Is it some faith issue in your life that you need to deal with? Maybe for some of you, you know, you need to, you're, you're ready to finally take the step of baptism and go public with your faith. We actually have a baptism opportunity coming up here. Easter weekend, really excited about this. I think Easter's a great weekend for people to take this step of faith and get baptized and say, I'm ready to walk through this with you, Father. And uh, we've got everything that you need to get baptized. If you're interested in doing this, there's a card in your program. Just fill that out and put it in the offering bag. So what do you need to point your face toward and walk through it, okay? Following your heavenly father. I want you to think about that. I want you to reflect on that during communion because all of us face moments we dread and the way that we keep it from detouring us off the road into the ditch somewhere is to say, Father, I trust you just like Jesus did. I want your will, not mine. Let's resolve to follow Jesus' example as we share communion together. And if if communion's new for you, if it's all new for you and you want to take a pass on it, that's fine. But uh, our communion is open to all followers of Jesus to once again remember what he did for each one of us. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for what we see Jesus live out in the garden. We thank you for the way that he deals with, with moments of dread in his life And we thank you for the way that he just walks right through that struggle and shows us that we can trust you. God, I know right now there are people here listening in this room who are feeling anxious and overwhelmed right now by things that they're dreading, things that are next for them, and they just want to run and hide and ignore and make excuses. But God, would you just show us your will, what your will is? And would you give us strength to walk through it and trust you like Jesus did? 
And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.